0: A start on demand. On-, on demand
1: the Waverly underpass is finally open it opened this morning actually it opened yesterday it quietly opened on Sunday Greg went down to have a look to start the show this morning and we'll tell you about its glory back to school shopping stress. Greg's family experienced it over the weekend. Counselor Jeff Brawati joins us to talk about the concourse at Portage in Maine. He says the Four Corner tenants need to pay their fair share to repair that underground concourse. And ADHD in adults can be life-threatening when left untreated. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, who's back Tuesday. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Monday, August 19th podcast for The Start. It's Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is back tomorrow, sort of. We'll explain what that is. And I guess I should say sort of Mackling because he's not in studio. I'm all alone in studio because Greg has gone out into the wilderness. And Greg, is it glorious?
0: Oh, my gosh, Brett McGarry. Do you remember that Seinfeld episode when... Kramer paints the over the lines with the black paint to give extra wide lanes on his stretch of the uh, of the freeway. Yeah, this is uh, very similar here for a lot of Winnipeggers right now. Let me tell you, to come through Waverley and Taylor and not have to worry about whether or not there's a train or two trains crossing is uh, pretty welcome news and a welcome event for a lot of people, my man.
1: Yeah, I remember when the Plessy's underpass finally opened, that one took forever, but when it finally opened, the first time I went through it, it was such a fantastic feeling to not have to worry. There w- there wasn't a train going over at the time, but I didn't care. It just felt so good to know that I would never have to deal with that ever again. And now at Waverly, because that, that, the thing with Waverly in particular, Like, that was the route that I always took to head out to, of course, LaSalle to go to to Kingswood. But it was always a crapshoot. It was the fastest way when there wasn't a train. But when there was a train, Mm -hmm. as you pointed out, the the chances of hitting a train are 50-50, basically, for me. And the chances of getting two trains are, I would say, one in four, it happens every time. So, yeah, man, uh, I'm excited just to go out there to, to have a look. I guess it opened quietly last night.
0: Yes, it was interesting. I was watching Twitter and all of a sudden you started seeing people posting pictures. And let me tell you, some of these pictures have this uh, underpass looking just like it would in a drawing. You had to do a double take and go, is that the conceptual drawing or is that an actual photograph? Well, I can tell you from driving through it, the grass is green as can be. The blacktop is black as can be. The lines are as yellow and white as can be. And it is quite idyllic, uh, for lack of a better terminology, when you go through here, it's exactly as presented in uh, a lot of the pictures and the, and the conceptual drawings you might have seen over the years. It's fantastic. Of course, not all the lanes are open, Brett. Uh, you still cannot turn onto Taylor, I guess that's westbound from northbound Waverly because they're still working on that intersection a little bit and the other change that a lot of people are looking forward to is the fact that uh, now Taylor is not just one lane in each direction it's going to be two lanes in each direction divided all the way from Waverly to Grant so this has reshaped this whole area of the city and then about a year from now You also have the uh, Southwest Transit Corridor going into service. So this whole area is going to see a massive change, uh, not only now and next year, but over the years to come. As There's more uh, development planned for just uh, east of where the Humane Society is on Hurst Way there. And uh, yeah, this is this is an ever-evolving part of the city for sure.
1: Yeah, but just as we have one traffic headache finally alleviated somewhat, we have a new one to, uh, to remind everybody about for this morning: the Louise Bridge is now closed for the next two weeks. So that's going to be a headache for a lot of people and will likely create some bottlenecks on a variety of routes like Provence comes to mind. I guess if you want to use the Disraeli and maybe make your way to Talbot, that's going to be tough. Uh, might funnel more people towards Marion where then you could end up hitting a train at Archibald. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a big one for anybody coming from east uh, the east side of Winnipeg.
0: Yeah, and even if you don't drive a car, Brett, uh, there are several bus use, uh, pardon me, bus routes that utilize the Louise Bridge, and so that's going to alter their path. I imagine it will alter the timing that uh, it takes to get you from point A to point B. If you're used to taking that from the east side of the river into downtown, so lots of changes in traffic. Uh, not only positively but uh, also in a negative fashion for a lot of folks i'm going back underneath the underpass now it's kind of like a ride at disneyland
1: are you just going to set up a lawn chair and then camp out for the day
0: No, I think I'll head back and come and hang out with you. Uh, You sound lonely in the studio with McNabb, not there. So I'm going to head back and come back and do the rest of the show here. Uh, One of our uh, global uh, colleagues is going to join us throughout the morning. I just passed him. He's he's looking kind of lonely right now, sitting down on the grass, reading his notes, Connor Chan. He'll join us uh, throughout the morning. Uh, not only here on 680 CGOB but if you want to get some pictures you can certainly tune into the morning show on uh, Global uh, Channel 9 Cable 12.
1: Were you able to grab some pics like did you get out and have a look or did you just drive through?
0: I just drove through it's not really a great place to stop I guess I could stop in the chamois uh, parking lot there but I'm more concerned about getting back and hanging out with you. we got a busy show planned.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk some football in our next segment. You're going to join us for that conversation as well?
0: You betcha, man.
1: Okay, so yeah, football. Of course, uh, the Bomber game last week was good, but bad, so we have to discuss that. We also have tons of stuff, once again, to give away today. Lots of stuff to win here on 680 CJOB on the start. We have at 637 two tickets to Hot Wheels Monster Trucks Live at Bell MTS Place. That's happening this weekend. At 7.15, we've got two tickets to see the Green Bay Packers versus the Oakland Raiders this Thursday at IG Field. And then at 8.45, we've got two tickets to see Rent the Musical at the Centennial Concert Hall. And I also see, Greg, we have some sort of announcement with Beat the Box Office tickets coming tomorrow. So I'm excited about that. Have you heard what this could be?
0: Is it a mystery at this point?
1: It is a mystery. I I, I don't know. I was hoping maybe uh, you heard something throughout the week.
0: No, I have nothing to add to that. Uh, maybe I can add to the suspense, because even if I did know, I would be able to tell you, but then you know what they say. I could tell you, but then I'd have to... You know, <laughs> silence you somehow. So okay, well we, we don't, <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> We're already short-handed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What is it, Staples, that uses the music in their ads? It's the most wonderful time
0: of the year. And for a lot of people, that's deadly accurate. (laughs) Not for everyone, but certainly for a lot of of us with kids, it's it's time for them to go back, okay? Eight weeks is just plain and simply too long, and uh, they call it the dog days of summer for a reason, right? Because it's a long break, it's an extended break, and uh, there are... A few challenges that come with this uh, time of year. You're celebrating on one hand, and of course that's mostly tongue-in-cheek, but uh, also uh, we have to uh, go back to school shopping, we need clothes, kids inevitably need new shoes, they always outgrow their running shoes, and you, you always need them at the beginning of the year. And of course, the dreaded school supplies list, and it's a grind for many on the financial front, never mind the emotional front. Getting your kids back to a reasonable schedule with electronics, activities, and sports, which are restarting as well. And, of course, sleep and bedtimes. That's a challenge for a lot of us. Negotiating new bedtimes and routines are one thing. Making your way to the variety of stores offering sales on back-to-school essentials is another and i relayed earlier this morning Brett the fact that on friday Jackie went back to school shopping for the school supplies filled out the list of stuff that we didn't already have left over from last year then went to a different retailer on saturday and realized that there were some dramatic differences in pricing so guess what we ended up doing sunday we took back the stuff that was dramatically overpriced at friday's retailer and so between the, the between the three excursions I'm guessing Jackie spent close to five hours in terms of buying back-to-school supplies. That has us asking a few different questions about retail, some different strategies on saving money, on how to attack this. Craig Patterson is editor-in-chief with Retail Insider, and he's here to help us attack some of these purchases with the business operator's psyche in mind. Craig, thanks for taking some time with us this morning. Thank you for having me on the show. This is obviously a very busy time, second only to Christmas in terms of retail sales for a lot of folks.
2: That's right. Uh, consumers are spending, I think, an average of $168 per child in Canada. That's the statistic that I heard, and that's for uh, school age and then uh, close to 200 for uh, post-secondary students.
0: So it's a ton of money. it's uh, it's expense that that sometimes we don't save for. The retailers are obviously trying to capitalize on this. and I, I mentioned our experience <laughs> on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday trying to recapture some of the the money that that we overspent uh, based on uh, on where we went on, on Friday to buy some of this stuff. Talk, talk about loss leaders and and some of the strategies the retailers employ to get you in the in the store in the first place.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're seeing so many new retailers coming online in Canada, uh, you know, opening stores and whatnot, that uh, they're really, really competing, and, you know, the marketing, you know, it's, it's earlier every year. It's more pronounced, like you said, with Staples again. I mean, uh, they have an amazing campaign, by the way, with that song. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's really, you know, quite topical and catchy. Uh, you know, retailers right now that are selling supplies, uh, you know, to students or, or, you know, even fashion whatnot, some students who want a new wardrobe or technology, I mean, they're all clamoring to, to, to get, you know, the limited consumer dollars at a time when the cost of living has gone through the roof. And, and you know, at the at same time, incomes for many have stagnated.
1: So when it comes to -to back-to-school shopping, you know, like we see uh, prices go up for flowers, for example, around Valentine's Day or Mother's Day. Those are probably the worst times to to buy flowers because you know you're going to be paying more. Uh, So do stores sometimes jack the prices on school supplies? As Greg pointed out, he ended up finding better, way better deals and had to take a whole bunch of stuff back.
2: Well, I wouldn't say that they jack the prices up. I mean, typically, you know, a retail price should hopefully be somewhat consistent. But some retailers are going to, you know, discount certain products. And whether or not that would be something from this season or something from the past, you know, with pens and pencils, I don't think people even buy those anymore. But, with you know, whatever items, you know, students are using nowadays, you know, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, perhaps in season unless it's technology. But, you know, there's going to be, I think, a bit of a price war. I mean, like you said, you know, you've got some retailers that are charging full price and expect that they can do so. But if you've got other retailers undercutting them, you know, if others are going to compete, they're going to have to, you know, either do something, you know, interesting from, you know, a non-price perspective to bring consumers in. Uh, you know, offering perhaps a premium product, looking for, you know, catering to wealthier shoppers, or they're going to have to reduce their prices as
0: well. Have consumers ever had more power, Craig, in terms of the knowledge that's available to them, the ability to price watch online, to shop online? Uh, th- this this really should be uh, the day of empowerment for, for folks uh, that are shopping on a regular basis, and in this case, for back-to-school products.
2: Oh, you betcha. You You took the words out of my mouth. I mean, consumers have an opportunity to be incredibly educated in products. I mean, we've got, you know, Google at our fingertips. We don't have to type anymore. We can, you know, talk to our Google Home and get information. And, uh, you know, I've talked to some uh, retailers where they're saying that some of the consumers that come into a store know more about a product than the employees that are trying to sell that product to the consumer. It's uh, really quite fascinating. So, you know, the amount of information that people have, uh, and then on top of this now, you know, you've got apps and you've got other, you know, comparison-related, uh, 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 you know, other websites, uh, you know, applications on your phone, whatnot. That'll show you where the lowest price is going to be. Uh, you know, some retailers on top of that will undercut and offer the lowest price generally, you know, compared to an advertised price. I mean, you know, the consumer is, is astute and puts a little bit of effort into it. They can save a lot of money in, in the end. Uh, but, you know, on the flip side, this isn't good for retailers because they're they're, you know, getting lower margins i mean you know returning something to a store if you've paid a higher price uh, you know it's definitely a hit to the retailer uh, not you know not not to say that you did anything wrong i mean it's ultimately getting
1: the press prices i think but what, what most people want and we talked uh I think it was Friday Greg Thursday Friday we we spoke to a gentleman one of our long-time listeners Craig who works in a, at a computer store called Nothing but Tech and his suggestion was don't go out and buy you don't have to go out and buy a brand new laptop every couple of years just bring the older laptop in put a new hard drive in it and it's brand it's like brand new I wonder if you can do that with Apple products I I should do that myself but
2: <laughs> <laughs> I really I really like that strategy I mean Personally, you know, as somebody that, uh, you know, I I, I don't, I think that, you know, we're we're quite a wasteful society and being able to repurpose technology is terrific. I mean, it can save money and, you know, create less, I guess, waste in the environment if you're throwing something away. But at the same time, you know, uh, companies like Apple would be furious if this was something that, uh, you know, became mainstream because uh, the reason they make so much money, say, with iPhones and whatnot is because they're bringing out new models and they're making it difficult for you to repair the you know, existing model that you might already have.
0: Yeah, good old planned obsolescence. It's uh, something that's been around. But I always joke. Uh, my grandfather had a washing machine made by Viking, which was Eaton's house brand back in the day. And I bet you oh. he he used that washing machine for close to fifty years. And I uh, said, I bet you, I bet you, there aren't a lot of manufacturers who are making things as good as Viking did once upon a time. Uh, there there wouldn't be nearly as many uh, choices in in terms of appliances if if that was the case. That's right. I mean, some
2: products are actually designed to fail with uh, with time. I mean, there there is an opportunity, I think, to make things to last a lot longer. I mean, Thomas Edison's light bulb is still burning. And my uh, younger brother, who's an engineer, I mean, they teach... Uh uh, you know, engineers basically to create a lifestyle, a lifespan for certain products, you know, they'll burn out or break or, you know, wear out. I mean, there is a mathematical formula and, uh, you know, I'm not privy to all of that in terms of, uh, you know, what's happening, say, with shoes, whatever. But uh, nevertheless, you know, there is a limited lifespan on most things that we have. And it probably could be longer if it was designed better. But that in the same time, it would cost more money and retailers would make less money because you wouldn't have to keep buying new stuff.
1: Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief with Retail Insider, talking back-to-school shopping this morning. Thank you so much for the time, Craig. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 9.15 on 680 CJOB. The question of the day at CJOB.com. Are you stressed about back-to-school shopping? And the answers are yes, send help, no, I got it covered, and no kids, no worries. And so far, 89%... No kids, so no worries.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, that's because
1: everybody else is busy shopping. (laughs) 11% say, no, I got it covered. So far, not a single vote for yes, send help. Question of the day brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. You wanted to discuss... Something about the Winnipeg Free Press today. Yeah,
0: I I wrote this up, so this isn't off the top of my head. So if it sounds like I'm reading it, I am. Uh, But I wanted to put some thoughts to paper here to try and be as concise as possible. Uh, Every day we come to work, and our goal is to inform you the biggest stories of the day, to share some obscure news items that may have been missed by you, to speak uh, to the newsmakers themselves, expert commentators, and the reporters and journalists covering the news events firsthand. Hopefully we do that in an informative and entertaining fashion. Now I don't need to tell you how radio works, but in exchange for the time you spend with us, we share commercials from our advertisers. It isn't a complicated relationship. It is one that has changed over the years as audio and news on demand via the internet means you don't have to wait for Jeff Braun's newscast at the top and the bottom of the hour. We have modified the way we share our programming, online, live stream, podcasts, and live streaming with video on social media in some cases. This sea change in how you get your information has been felt by television networks and newspapers as well. On Saturday, the Winnipeg Free Press and reporter Ryan Thorpe debuted a fantastic piece of work about a neo-fascist group doing its best to recruit members in the city and around the province. Ryan put himself in harm's way to get the story, as did another reporter who went underground for this. The Free Press obviously compensates Ryan and this other reporter for their work, but how does the Free Press earn its money? Fifteen years ago, as from the more than half of Winnipeggers who either had a daily subscription or people who purchased the paper from a retailer. Today, today it is through retail sales, subscriptions, home delivery of the physical paper and or digital. And in the eyes of many, the dreaded paywall. The number of people physically reading a newspaper has dropped by half across North America in the past 25 years. The number of Americans with a daily newspaper subscription has dropped by half since 1990. Many uh, many newspapers have discontinued print editions altogether, uh, or the number of days that they print, or they've gone out of business. The reasons for this change are many. The point is this. There were a number of people who were dismayed by the fact that Ryan Thorpe's journalism wasn't available for free online. At least one person was compelled to share a digital backdoor to a free version of the article. The debate over access to this work and others was heated. Both sides made very strong points as to why the article should or shouldn't live in the public domain. What should be free? Why are we hesitant to pay for exclusive work from publishers? Has this access to information made it more difficult to produce unique works of journalism almost impossible? James Turner is a journalism instructor at Red River College. He will shed more light on this for us, give us his opinion, his insight when he joins us at eight thirty-seven. The paywall, and you—you use the correct term, the dreaded
1: paywall. I understand why the paywall is there for certain sites. I think is it the Guardian or the Independent uh, sometimes will throw up a paywall. Uh, you want to read a story, and then it, you get the first paragraph. And if you want to read the whole thing, you got to log in. You have to subscribe. And I admit, most times I just bail out and try to find the information somewhere else. And if I can't, I just sort of give up on it. I don't, I don't subscribe to these things. But sometimes I wonder, should I? And I also wonder, why are we so hesitant to to pay for this stuff if it's a trusted source of information? why not get a subscription? We subscribe to Netflix, we subscribe to music, streaming services, but when it comes to information, we don't want to pay for it.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point you make, Brett. I know (laughs) back in the day, you used to see these signs up at gas stations that this is not a library. If you want to read the newspaper, buy it. And uh, you can still go to the library and get a physical copy and, and read it for free if you have a library card at a public library. So there is that access. I think the internet for so long has spoiled it, spoiled us with free content that now to change that attitude around, well, now you might have to pay for it. You pay with time or you pay with money, right? Two currencies in life. Yep. And in the radio example that we gave you, you pay with some of your time to listen to the advertisements. Online, those digital commercials, they just aren't replacing the revenue that they used to get from print commercials. And in television, they're dealing with the same thing. The revenue does not equal what they got for over-the-air broadcasts. So it's a conversation uh, that's been going on for a while. Uh, It was really highlighted this weekend with this tremendous piece of journalism uh, by the Winnipeg Free Press. We mentioned earlier, Brett, that on Saturday, the Winnipeg Free Press and reporter Ryan Thorpe, along with the help of another unnamed reporter, debuted a fanta- fantastic piece of work about a neo-fascist group doing its best to recruit members in the city and around the province. Ryan put himself in harm's way, as did this other uh, unnamed journalist. The Free Press obviously compensates these individuals for their work, but we ask the question, how does the Free Press earn its money Fifteen years ago, it was from the more than half of Winnipegers who either had a daily subscription or people who purchased the paper from a retailer. And just a sidebar: Winnipeg had one of the highest rates. Winnipeg Free Press had one of the highest reader rates anywhere in North America. Wow! Uh, Winnipeggers love and and love their newspapers for a long time. Today. They get their generate their revenue in part, uh, of course through their their sales uh, of advertising, but uh, how do they get their how do they get their readers through retail sales, subscriptions of home delivery, of the physical paper and or digital delivery, and in the eyes of many, the dreaded paywall. There were a number of people who were dismayed by the fact that Ryan Thorpe's journalism wasn't available for free online least one person was compelled to share a digital backdoor to a free version of the article. What should be free? Why are we hesitant to pay for exclusive work from publishers? And has this access to information made it more difficult to produce unique works of journalism? Almost impossible. James Turner is a journalism instructor at Red River College and he joins us now. Good morning, James. Hi, nice to be here. Always great to talk to you, James. So, uh, you know, we don't necessarily have to speak specifically uh, about what went down this weekend unless, unless you have some comments on it.
3: Well, let me ask you, I mean, in your intro to the segment, you called Ryan's piece a fantastic piece. Let me ask you, as a, as a fellow journalist, what made it a fantastic piece?
0: its uniqueness, the lengths to which uh, that were the lengths that were gone to get the story to embed and to do something that I think uh, uh, a lot of other journalists were speaking to each other behind the scene about how do we cover this story? And they went all in and did this the old fashioned way, in my opinion, James.
3: No, I I completely agree. The amount of legwork that it took to put that piece together was, you know, um, something we don't see a lot of in Winnipeg anymore. Um, but the whole point is, is that that's the kind of material that people want to read, right? They want information like that. They want to see and experience these things, you know, at firsthand for the most part, and they want in-depth uh, examinations of these really crucial issues. I mean, that that piece really gets to the heart of some of the uh, political problems that Canada is starting to experience. Um, but unfortunately, what I'm seeing and what I saw on Saturday was— an, uh, an unwillingness, I think, is this mentality that um, it's, not really, it, it's not really worth paying for. And in my mind, uh, that's the exact type of stuff that you should, in fact, be paying for.
0: I think, you know, we struggle in the local media to ask and answer the question. I I think it's easier asked than answered. Uh, How do we make this story relevant? How do we make it local? How do we make uh, what happened in Portland over the weekend with with some fascist and and neo-fascist conflicting uh, um, demonstrations? How do we make that relevant in Winnipeg? How do we make Donald Trump's comments relevant? How do we do these different things to to point out that, that, this isn't just an issue south of the U.S.-Canadian border, it's living in our own backyard, and the resources required to tell those stories aren't always available for media outlets the way they were once upon a time.
3: No, of course not. So um, the Free Press goes all in. They take one of their their good reporters and put him off on an assignment for a couple of weeks, if not much, much, much more time than that. And that is expensive. Uh, it's not as if he's working for free, and nor should he be working for free. But nonetheless, that's a resource that the, the paper no longer has to cover daily news, to do uh, stories of the day, things like that, because of their belief in wanting to tell this story in a way that impacts local Winnipeggers. Right? And then the information comes back. He's given time to work on it another reporter like you said is gets involved there's designers paginators editors all that stuff and it's expensive it's not cheap to do this work and for 27 cents i can go to their website and read it and some people obviously don't think it's worth it and i just i question the mentality
1: what should be free in terms of online content when it comes to news you know it's a great question
3: um Uh, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of sort of commodity news, Uh, the daily police blotter, uh, news releases from the government, things like that, that anybody with an ounce of Internet sense could probably go and sort of read about through the quote-unquote official channels. They can read the police's material themselves. They can read the government's material themselves. Um, often those stories, are they can be kind of short until, of course, the journalist starts to dig into it and find faults or holes or different angles or whatever it might be. But just simply covering the daily news, hey, this is happening now, I think, I think that's fair game in terms of, like, putting it out there for free. But the minute you start paying an employee to start digging around, asking questions, and coming up with things that, that don't fit necessarily the official narrative, that's where... The value in journalism starts to become apparent, and that's where people need to start ponying up.
0: And I agree with you on so many fronts here, James. It's this idea of a Canadian press article that's available in every single publication across across the country—not to put down what the Canadian press does—but
3: well, let's be let's be clear about that. Canadian press is a, is a wire service that all or that many many newsrooms subscribe to. They pay a handsome fee every year to. To have that material available for their readers,
0: absolutely. Locally,
3: w- locally, what that translates into is a lot of national news, a lot of international news, and uh, we have two CP reporters uh, in Winnipeg, Steve Lambert and um, and uh, uh, pardon me, Kelly Malone, who cover local issues. I think from a national focus um, for CP. And often those stories are, you know what, they're, they're quite exclusive and in-depth as well. So it's, it's a value to that, that uh, publication to have them covered.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, I'm, I was starting to think that, that maybe those were the type of stories that, that need to be available to everyone. But, but perhaps I'm, I'm mistaken on that front. What I'm more
3: talking about is um, uh, you'll get a notification later today of whether the police are holding a news conference. And at 11 o'clock, they'll hold a news conference and they'll issue a press release. Now, many times, what I'm seeing is that uh, media simply re- recover the what police have said. They rewrite it in more friendly language or in terms of, of public consumption. But that's commodity news. It's nothing that anyone, again, with an ounce of Internet sense, can't go and find out for themselves. The real question is, and the real value is, and taking those stories a step further, digging up more detail. Um, we've seen several, say, crime stories over the last number of months about, say, killers who uh, or accused killers who have been rearrested and were on parole for whatever reason. That takes time and effort to sort of dig up. And that's where people need to pay. Uh, that's where the value in that that information really comes from.
1: So why do you think it is that we're so hesitant to, to pay for this kind of work? Is it just because we've had too much free content for too long? I, 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 from a
3: psychological perspective, I, I find it really difficult um, to see it in any other way. Uh, we, just like in the music industry in the early 2000s or late 90s, uh, there was a, the Napsterization of things. Stuff just started to become free, so the mentality was, well, why, why buy the cow when I can get the milk for free, so to speak? And there was a disastrous decision made by many larger newsrooms way back when to start putting their uh, material up online. And the public became accustomed to reading things for free, Getting again, getting the milk for free. And over the last 10 years, there's been considerable efforts to try and draw that back. And it's met some resistance, I think, from the public, who can also, of course, get news for free from places like the CBC or other uh, local sites like Christie. So there is resistance to actually spending money every month or every week or per story on material.
0: It's a catch-22 because if these organizations don't have the money to create original content, uh, the value for that service, for that fee, goes down and it becomes uh, somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy.
3: Well, that's exactly the point, is that when you look at it long term, and all you need to do is look into what's happening in the states and their local news markets, is uh, there's this a massive retraction of local reporters, which has caused a, a real desert of, of, of credible, accurate, and compelling local news, which has therefore driven uh, uh, things like misinformation online. Uh, it, it's, it's very, very problematic to look down the road and think, okay, well, what if the Free Press or the Winnipeg Sun didn't exist anymore? That's scary. It's scary for Winnipeg because we would have so much less local coverage to understand Winnipeg and sort of see what its various issues are and be able to understand and make decisions based on that. And I wish people, uh, especially younger people, would start to see the long game here, is that eventually they're going to come to the conclusion that the stuff matters, and when it's gone, it's gone.
1: James Turner is a journalism instructor at Red River College, joining us live on 680 CJOB. James, thank you. Pleasure as always. Thank you.
0: But right now in studio, Greg, who is sitting to your left? My city councillor. He doesn't have to come knock on my door. He's right here. Uh, Jeff Berwadi, city councillor for North Kildonan, joins us this morning. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, gentlemen. Big, uh, Big day for folks in the south part of the city, experiencing what we did, what, almost eight? Is it almost eight years ago that the chief pig was trail? It'll be eight years in December, actually. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, so uh, we know what new infrastructure can do for a community. It it changes the, your ability to 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 go either across town or just to go across uh, a section of the city of Winnipeg. So it's it's a big deal. These investments are critical.
4: They are. I mean, Winnipeg is a growing city. All the different quadrants are growing, and we need this infrastructure. I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say that I would love to see Chief Pegwus extended further west onto McPhillips and around to Route
0: 90, but there's different needs and different parts of the city are growing. so, So that's the good news. So one issue that you and I have been on opposite sides of pretty much from uh, the get-go is Portage and Main. And your side won uh, the Pelt Plebiscite in October to to keep Portage and Main closed to pedestrians. But for 40 years, the underground uh, concourse has been in service and it's starting to show its age.
4: Yeah, without a doubt, Greg. It's looking a little tired at this point. Um, there hasn't been a lot of investment in keeping it up. It doesn't meet uh, modern accessibility standards for people who have mobility issues. So it's time to to look at it. Um, there were 40-year um, access agreements. The original uh, Four Corners did contribute to towards its original construction. At this point, uh, we need to go back to those uh, original partners, talk to them, and figure out how we're going to move forward. Uh, the city, we got an email. Uh, council received an email on Friday from the acting CAO uh, indicating that um, a report had come back to the city in May doing a condition assessment, like what's wrong, what needs to be replaced, where are the various systems at, whether it's escalators, heating, venting, air conditioners, um, uh, structural systems. We understand, you know, what, what about the membrane that keeps the water out? Those are all important pieces. So the city has that. That hasn't really been shared yet with council. I don't know to what degree there's costing in terms of the, the repairs. Uh, we, we did get an indication, though, that a new RFP is going to be issued this fall looking for that costing. What I'm concerned about is we haven't gone and spoken to the various uh, um, partners, the, the the building owners at the Four Corners, to look at how we're going to share it. Um, like if you have a, a store in a, in a shopping mall, for example, you pay what's called a common area cost. There's a, an advantage to being part of a shopping center, and you pay a, a piece of the operating cost of the mall. Portage Main is a little different. I recognize that. I mean, it is a public way to get across the street. It is, as we know, the only way to publicly get across the street. So it's important that uh, you know, the city does pay part of this c- operating cost, making sure that there's security 24-7, but there does need to be an access agreement as well, and I want to make sure that that, uh,
1: that piece comes forward sooner than later. Oh. And if the city owns the concourse, the city owns the concourse, right? That's right. So why should the, uh, the, the four corners have to contribute to the concourse? I mean, there is a benefit to uh,
4: all the office towers for being there. They can charge higher rents. I mean, if you ask the people who are tenants in those buildings, um, there's a benefit to being able to access, you know, the amenities in the various concourses. If you want to access the food court, if you want to access the other banks at the, at the other corners, even parking. You know, um, 360 uh, Portage has a nicer parkade, for example, than the one at 201 Portage. So the lawyers that are, were at 201 would often, you know, it's so easy to move between the different buildings because of the concourse that they would uh, park, you know, say at one of the parkades because they prefer that one over another one. Uh, being able to grab a sandwich at lunch, having meetings. Um, my, my father used to uh, have his real estate appraisal business in 220 Portage. that was connected to the concourse. So there was the advantage, you know, the residential appraisals, every day went to one of the big banks at Portage in Maine. Uh, they had a photo finisher in the, in the concourse, so they could, you know, take their manual films and have them developed. And, you know, everything was all so, so tightly knit. So... There's that ecosystem of businesses that cooperate and work together there, and having that concourse is important, and it's a, and it's a year-round benefit.
0: Based on the expression from at least three that we know for sure publicly that came out in favor of opening the the, the intersection to pedestrians, uh, I'm guessing you expect pushback from those from those investors, those property owners on this as they you know, they, they, they were pretty clear about what they wanted to see in the public site in October. Well,
4: again, there were letters of support that were issued to council. And the language in those letters was very clear that with a investment from the city in the public space, they were supportive of the reopening of Portage and Maine. My understanding is that most, if not all, of the uh, access agreements that were signed back in the 1970s gave the property owners a 40-year renewal clause if they wanted it. Uh, whether or not they were going to exercise it knows you know, it was it was to remain to be seen, but uh, they were willing to forego that if the city was investing in that underground concourse. I almost got it left with the impression that we were to, the taxpayers were to be on the hook for the, the entire entirety of the upgrades. Um, I'm not saying that they should be paying for the full pop like the property owners. But again, they should be uh, contributing. And I think they are, would be willing to contribute if if it came to that. What does need to be fixed? Again, that, acts, that report came back to the city in May, but it's going to include things like probably, you know, what's the condition of the escalators in, the heating venting systems, um, whether or not the um, the membrane can, be, can be patched or does it need to be replaced entirely? If it needs to be replaced entirely, who knows? They may have to close down parts of the intersection, and that's going to create all sorts of traffic chaos. Uh, we haven't seen that yet. Uh, I'm hoping that the... Uh, Administration provides counsel with a briefing sooner than later. I'm on the Standing Policy Committee on Infrastructure, Renewal, and Public Works. At the very least, that report should be uh, made available to that committee.
0: We're seeing so much activity at that intersection now, but there are still people, interests, depending on who you listen to, conversations at that. That vacant lot north of uh, 201 Portage on Main Street remains vacant. Uh, part of the reason given for that is because of a lack of pedestrian access. You're seeing what's going on at Graham and Main. So uh, you you could argue, and I don't want to do, make your argument for <laughs> you, that the concourse is in place and Portage and Main is maybe never done as well as it's doing with all the reinvestment that's taking place at that intersection. So where do we go from here and how do we, how do we yeah. engage in this and make it even better? We did our show from there uh, midweek last week and commented how beautiful it was to be at Porridge and Maine, to be outside and to see what we saw. How do we make it more of a peop- people place without opening it to pedestrians? That, that has to be a goal.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's not nearly as intuitive as it should be today. Without a doubt, it's not as pedestrian friendly. I mean, it's 1970s, brutalist, almost feeling uh, the design that's there. Um, you know, perhaps outdoors, there could be, you know, um, concourses that go below grade outdoors, and then you can, you know, visually see straight across where you're going. Why not color code the uh, the intersections? So if you're staying at the Fairmont Hotel, you're looking out the window, and it's like, oh, I want to go to that corner, and, you know, there's a blue line. Apparently, like an HSC, like there's different lines going mm-hmm. to different areas. If you're not from Winnipeg, if you're not making that trip daily, it's not that intuitive when you go to the underground concourse or the or the, or the circus, as they call it. So, um, safer feeling, better visibility, more obvious sight lines. I think there's some stuff that can be done. Um, I mean, part of the reason why you know even just going around the circus, there's you know, dips and dips and uh, elevations, is that they didn't want to move certain um, uh, city services, city sewer, services, water, big sewer. Et you know, yeah, sure. you don't want you know water to go up and down. I mean, water flows downhill, as we know, but um, so there are some complications, um but let's take a look. What can we do? What can we do to make it better?
1: Circus is an apt word because Greg as we rediscovered on Wednesday, going in to find a washroom was like going through a labyrinth. You have to go downstairs and then through a hall and then through another door and then back upstairs and then when I was going back down the stairs I ended up going up did the wrong set of stairs and was walking towards the women's washroom like circus is a perfect way to put it.
4: Signage, uh, access again, it, it is not nearly as intuitive as it needs to be. I mean if you go to a regular shopping mall. I mean, you go to the mall across the way here, Polo Park, there's pretty clear indications where the nearest bathrooms are pretty pretty frequently. So, yeah, we can do better. So, what's next then? Well, again, um, the proposal here is to put out an, an RFP to uh, uh, schedule the, the next steps. Um, the public service was charged previously to go and start negotiating with the property owners with the understanding that part of that negotiation was to be a, a reopening um, that needs to happen but it needs to be part of uh, you know making sure we're partners with them making sure they buy into the vision they have a lot of investment there they they you know have new tenants coming in we've got the uh, Bank of Montreal building unfortunately that's uh, being vacated because of changes in the in the banking industry. Let's work with everybody to figure out a way forward that's makes sense for them and for, for taxpayers.
0: Well, I wish you luck in uh, convincing the property orders owners to uh, pay into uh, what a lot of people view as civic in- infrastructure. Jeff, thanks for defending your, your point of view on this. And as always, it's great to see you.
4: Thank you, guys.
1: Let's talk right now about polls and the effect they have on voters.
0: Yeah, over the weekend, Brett, one media outlet published a public opinion poll which originally purported to suggest the provincial conservatives and the NDP were in a dead heat. Would have been the first poll to indicate this in a very long time. A group called Converso out of Toronto later pulled the poll, citing what it was calling uh, waiting issues, quote unquote. Bonnie Staples-Lyon, Director of Public Affairs at Changemakers. She's been a big part of monitoring and commenting on elections and election campaigns for a long time here on 680 CJOB. Joins us now. Good morning, Bonnie. Good morning. So polling obviously a huge part of the landscape whether it's in election time or not it's a way that we we keep the pulse on public opinion uh, who values these polls more do you think the public the organizations which commission and public uh, publish the results or the political parties themselves
5: I think the people who commission them do more a lot of times political parties don't uh, publish their polls because they're not sure if they want them to be seen or not. But organizations, that's who really benefits from this. I think people put, people do uh, watch polls and they can uh, impact them but only to a certain extent. And the one that uh, you uh, were just referring to, um, I'm not sure a lot of people put stock into that when that first came out because it was just so off base with all the other polling that had been coming out previously.
1: What are the dangers of these polls?
5: The dangers of these polls is that they're not reflecting what's actually happening. And if people really believe it, so it can, and it it can get your campaign into, um, take you off what your key message or what you have decided that you should be doing. That's why people do their uh, political parties do their internal polling so they know if their message is working, if they know if their opponent's message is working. So when a poll like this comes out of the blue, it um, it keeps everybody on track to get out to their people right away to say, this isn't what we're seeing. This is off base. Don't pay attention to it.
0: Are these polls I'm speaking of, Bonnie, are they as accurate as they used to be? Because we're seeing a huge trend, at least from my observation of of the the polls are saying one thing and then the election results are not necessarily diametrically off. Opposite, but certainly substantially different from what the polling was indicating and, and a lot of people are citing the way we communicate and, and the absence of landlines as one of the reasons for for these polls shifting in their accuracy what's what's your take on that
5: well i've actually you know I've, um, I love this stuff of course, um, so I was going through some of the research and looking at some of the think tanks, and polling actually has become more accurate um, and you only have to look at it, it's it's the polling though matters as far as a good poll and the weighting and the accuracy and if you just have there's not if you if you don't weight it accurately then you're not going to get your best result for instance brexit people were surprised by that yet all the polling showed it People were saying they were going to leave. A lot of people didn't want it to happen. Uh, A lot of politicians, a lot of business people. But the polling actually did show that people wanted to leave. When you look at the 2016 election of Donald Trump, I mean, the national polling was right on. They said Hillary would uh, win by two points, by an additional two points in the popular vote. But what happened was, statewide, they weren't in the field and they didn't see the quick shift over to Donald Trump. So true polling, the, the kind we see um, that is accurate, they go, they, they go on trends and they're in the field all the time so you can detect a switch.
0: So can this lead to voter apathy, this whole idea of polling and, uh, you know, oh, yeah, this poll is, is trending a certain way and it, it's trended this way uh, consistently. I don't really need to vote.
5: It can, but it hasn't showed that in the past. And in fact, in 2016, Twenty thousand and sixteen, 2016, the Manitoba vote, it actually had a higher than 2011. People people aren't putting as much faith in polls uh, as they used to, as you pointed out at the very beginning, just because of some of the aberrations and not understanding polling. So if they are motivated to vote, they will vote. At the end of the day though, what really matters in election polling as opposed to some other polling, it's really hard to understand if you're going, if you're saying to someone, are you going to go out and vote? Well, at some future time, data doesn't vote, so unless they go out, Like everybody you talk to, they might not go vote. And have you weighted it properly? Sometimes if you don't have the right demographics, right, you might miss a demographic that's coming out to vote. So at the end of the day, it's the internal polling. And then what um, uh, political parties do, they ID their vote, they get it out quickly at the advanced polls, and they drag it out the day of the election.
1: Bonnie Staples-Lyon, Director of Public Affairs for Changemakers, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you so much for this.
5: You guys take care.
1: Now we've got to switch gears to something that probably, Greg, the both of us are, are mildly uh, affected
0: by. You know what? You, you say that uh, maybe somewhat in jest, but I would agree with you. There's a real potential here. By now, we have all heard the letters ADHD used in concert. But have you heard of adult ADHD? Uh, my name is Dr. Tim Bilkey. I'm an
6: adult psychiatrist. I specialize in adult attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, ADHD. So the prevalence of adult ADHD in Canada is about 4.4 percent, so it's almost 5 percent, and that's approximately 1.1 million people. So it affects a lot of people. It's one of the commonest conditions in psychiatric medicine that gets underdiagnosed. It's only about 1 in 10 which, uh, who will actually come to a diagnosis. So in the diagnosis, you have to make sure that this person's always had it right through into adolescence and then into adulthood. So you just can't have a bad day and have ADD. This is something that's impacted in a person for their entire life. Typically in high school, they do everything last minute. They're often very smart, but they're, they're resorting to these last minute strategies. Teachers will start to say, we know you could do a lot better. You're not applying yourself. So if you've had a lifelong experience of being told that we know you're really smart, you just need to pull up your socks, which is great advice, for a person who has socks to do their bills and taxes. And what they often say to themselves is, I'll do that later, I'll do that tomorrow.
1: Now, the symptoms aren't the same for everyone, but ADHD is often debilitating. People with ADHD can also experience issues with their working memory, which means they'll walk into a room and forget why they're there. Most people have some or all of these symptoms at some point in their lives, which can make it difficult to know when it's actually ADHD. ADHD. Megan Cauley, national online journalist for Global News, focusing on smart living and entertainment, has an outstanding feature available for us online and for you online
0: and joins us now on the start. Good morning, Megan.
7: Hi, how are you?
0: Doing great, Megan. Outstanding work on this feature. I wanted to thank, thank you ahead. for it first and foremost. What drew you to this story?
7: Uh, it's funny. We were talking about it in, um, within our team here at Global News, um, and what we're finding is we have friends now who have children who have been diagnosed with ADHD, and the more that happens, the parents themselves start to realize that a lot of those, uh, can, those um, symptoms apply to them, too.
0: You know uh, that's interesting that you say that because um, uh, we've sort of gone down the preliminary road uh, with one of our with one of our kids, just uh, concerned about certain things. And and when you start reading uh, the list of of things that you ought to be concerned about, it, it does it does resonate with you, and and you think about your own situation, and you have to guard against that because. I've mentioned this before, even in med school, they caution and there's even a a little bit of a phenomenon where where people in medical school, when when they hear the symptoms of certain diseases and illnesses, go, oh, I've got that. So you've got to be careful on that front. Absolutely. It's a genuine thing, but the headline for this is ADHD in adults can be life-threatening when left untreated. This, according to one of the experts, or probably uh, more than one, Uh, why is that? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a really uh, startling declaration.
7: It is, yeah. But I do think that it speaks to the issue with um, ADHD when it's left untreated for a prolonged period of time. So with adults, obviously, you know, by the time you're 30, 40, 50 years old, you've lived a life. You've had um, experiences potentially with trauma. You have other, you know, aspects of your life that are ongoing compared to children. So when ADHD is left untreated, it can basically spawn other mental illness or um, disorders, anxiety, depression, substance abuse. All of these numbers are much higher in adults that aren't diagnosed with ADHD until you know midlife than they would be if their ADHD was being managed at an, a younger age.
1: There's a line in your story here that says that brains with ADHD are not working at full capacity. What's going on with it in terms of like, how does it inhibit your brain's ability to do its job?
7: Yeah. So this is interesting. I, when I was speaking to the experts I interviewed, I realized that I had actually never been described what it feels like to have ADHD. Uh, But the way that it was explained to me is that doctors think there's, it has something to do with less sort of liquid in your brain, less fluid. And with less fluid, your brain is working basically slower than everybody else's. So patients who are diagnosed with ADHD report feeling like the world is moving in a blur. Like when they're trying to um, switch from task to task or even multitask, it's really difficult for them because Um, everything sort of blends together. Uh, So as the doctor said in my story, that's why often the medications you hear about that are used for ADHD to treat it can actually stimulate the brain and make it more active.
0: And some of the adult things that were outlined in that clip that I played from that one psychiatrist uh, can be problematic to the point where real adult situations that are going left unattended are piling up on you.
7: Exactly. And that is really the distinction that's important to make. You know, you hear a lot of times people say, oh, I'm pretty sure I have ADHD just because, you know, they've had one day where they feel disorganized or like they're behind the eight ball with with people who are actually suffering from ADHD. This is an ongoing issue that starts to affect their daily life. So they're forgetting things like, you know, putting oil in their car and to the point where they get stranded on the highway or they're forgetting, you know, uh, their kids, doctor's appointments, you know, very important moments in their life that are sort of going, um, unattended to. And that's really the issue. And that is why it can cause a lot of anxiety and depression for, for a lot of these people, because they feel like they're just not good at life, but it's actually, you know, a larger issue that, that they can get help for.
1: Is it difficult to get diagnosed as an adult?
7: It can be tricky. What a lot of experts told me is that it can be um, more difficult than with children. You know, when a child is suspected to have ADHD, they undergo a, a plethora of psychological tests. But a big indication for a child is in interviews with their teachers, their parents and looking at their report cards with adults you may not have access to some of those resources. So, you know, you have to rely on interviews with a spouse or significant other if there is one. Um, And a lot of, you know, the adult themselves speaking about their life and their experience. The trouble with that is, you know, the average patient, let's say they're 35, 40 years old, they've lived with this condition for 40 years. So it can be tough for them to realize what isn't normal. They've never not had their own brain. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. When you're in the middle of it, it's probably very difficult to to realize that you're that you're deficient in some areas, and so uh, it often takes somebody from the outside to tap you on the shoulder. and And let's face it, uh, we have a difficult time telling someone when they've got spinach in their teeth. So never mm-hmm. mind me going to Brett. Hey, buddy, I think you might have adult ADHD. Probably not going to happen. One of the other barriers, and I didn't see it mentioned in this uh, in this article, but Megan, I'm sure you're aware, is the cost to adults in terms of getting diagnosed. It, there's a it can be potentially a substantial cost to get all the the testing done
7: absolutely and you know, as with a lot of medical conditions um it the cost is definitely a barrier uh there are some depending on what province you're in, there are some grants you can apply for, but that is a huge barrier that that needs to be discussed uh more for sure
1: and then uh, just once again, a treatment how is uh, how do you treat? some an adult with adhd like do you have to go on a medication
7: yeah so again you know as you were saying in the intro um The ADHD looks different for everyone. Uh, So treatment will also look different, almost from person to person, perfectly unique. Um, Sometimes it involves medication. Sometimes it will involve different kinds of therapy. Um, What's important, though, is, you know, working with your family physician, working with a specialist, if that's what you end up seeing. And, you know, going on a trial and error basis, it might not be perfect the first time, but with the help of a doctor, you should be able to pin down what works for you.
0: Megan, it's an outstanding story, and uh, we appreciate you giving us some greater insight into it uh, this morning with us. Thank you so much, and uh, let's talk again.
7: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Megan Cauley, national
1: online journalist focusing on smart living and entertainment with Global News, joining us live on 680 CJOB. You can read more on that at globalnews.ca.